episode number 207, season 14, episode 3. We're back with Steve Jones and Kieran. And uh, I don't know, Kieran, do you want to, yeah, do you want to say your last name? Do you, oh, yeah, we have on the previous shows, right? Yeah, Kieran Wortham. Okay. I wasn't sure if I couldn't remember. I forgot, duh. So uh, we have an interesting show lined up for today, and we're going to be discussing the Codex Sinaticus and Walcott and Hort and the revision, the, the how do you say, the, the, the Bible revisionism that's taken place over the last century. We're going to be discuss, discussing Tischendorf and uh, what appears to be quite a large scandal to undermine Christianity through the corruption of the Bible by using fake uh, codices to sell a Gnostic communist version of Christianity. Steve, Kieran, welcome back. Hi. Hi, How thank you. And uh, Steve, you want to just start diving right in? How did you land on this topic? Uh, most of it had to do with what I thought was an empty empty side of the Dead Sea Scrolls as to why they needed the Dead Sea Scrolls to complete a puzzle. And I mean, a lot of this has to do with, to be honest with you, one of my first uh, classes in Greek and things, I, I spoke with Karen about this a while back, that I had actually taken a bunch of classes and in early Greek and, and history and stuff like that. And the professor was also a priest. I started getting into squabbles because it, it seemed like there was a kind of a tainted, a tainted underneath to the whole thing. He, he was kind of pushing church, early church fathers that if you look them up, really weren't church fathers. Uh, he was, he, we were actually translating. In fact, I, I translated most of the book of John, me and uh, another student. And it, it's, the things that we were translating didn't quite match what was being pushed. And so I started to sort of get in trouble, let's put it that way, because they, uh, I asking too many of the wrong questions, I guess, let's put it that way. Don't ask questions. So yeah. about four months ago, you and I did a show on uh, basically the faking of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how one of the first projects the CIA did, if not the first project the CIA did, three days after their inception in June 1947, was hold a conference in Seelisburg, Switzerland, where uh, all of the players came together to essentially what appears to have faked the Dead Sea Scrolls, to which eventually led to the Vatican II issue and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, I well, that, let me let me correct that just a little bit. I mean, that's all right what you said, but what I found out kind of since we did the first Dead Sea Scroll thing is that the real Vatican II actually happened during World War II, and it was a prep, it was kind of a preparation for Vatican II, and that there was a Cardinal B was really running the Vatican at that time. Uh, what it what happened is, and this is what kind two two things really set me off. One was that 
Cardinal B's main task before Vatican II and before, uh, right during World War II, was basically to rehabilitate somebody who had the Rome had already declared a heretic before the turn of the century. Uh, it was a, a Father Lagrange. What happens is people go, there's two Father Lagranges and everybody gets them always mixed up. One is a very good scholastic. The other is, was a heretic. And so what, oddly enough, in the proclamation, I can't remember the Vatican proclamation at that time, they literally mentioned before World War II that they're going to find archaeological evidence that's going to vindicate this person that they've already labeled a heretic and that they need his way of looking at things to make sense of these things. So they, they invested a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to basically take something that by the end of the 1800s, they had already declared a heresy. He had, he had already started to put together mo modern Bible translations. Uh, in fact, he was basically the, the beginning of the New Jerusalem Bible, which a lot of Catholic churches used, uh, which undermined the Douay Rheims eventually. But the other thing that really startled me was I had just about finished the book and I was looking for early, I, when before I publish something, I'm always double and cross-checking to make sure I don't have, there's no outliers out there that would prove me wrong. And I found the book called uh, When It Was Dark. And there's just such an odd story behind the guy. And the story in there is almost identical to what I had figured out had must have happened during the Dead Sea Scrolls. What was odd about it, and I think we mentioned this once before, is that there was a refugee in Esterhazy, I think it was a Colonel Esterhazy from the Dreyfus Affair, which a lot of French thought that the whole Dreyfus Affair was orchestrated to undermine the Catholic Church. And rather than face death, he escaped and was smuggled out by the Oscar Wilde clan to England and stayed at Guy Thorne's house who wrote when it was dark. And they said at the time that there was, they were going to unearth this, this huge scandal of a story. And it, it just had all the ear, you know, how do you end up right? Guy Thorne, before he wrote when it was dark, basically wrote pornography and spy novels and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, they, him and the whole Oscar Wilde crowd, except for Oscar Wilde, had this big epiphany and they all turned uh, Anglo-Catholic or Catholic, depending on where they were, and, and sort of cleaned up their ways. And so there, it's, it was more of a hunt. What, where, did, where is these two events? Where are they drawing off of and why are they doing it? Um, I also, we have a Baptist Bible college in this town and I've had to defend myself several times against them. And mm -hmm. Uh, certain things eventually just started to connect together. So, I was just showing the audience the uh, database on screen with some of the players. And, of course, Oscar Wilde is who wrote uh, pictures of Dorian Gray, the, the satanic film about the uh, Hellfire Club, the American branch of which was founded by James Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's brother, the propagandist from whom we derive the term yellow journalism <laughs> there you go so anyhow what i propose to do tonight is before i got into this i started researching what i thought was the controversy 
and I found two stark side differences. One was kind of a, uh, what would you call it? What we, I hate to use the term Catholic because Catholic go, has almost two versions of it. There's the modern use of Catholic, which means universal, which means everybody. The old term of Catholic referred to universals as in Thomas Aquinas, which, you know, essence and substance, which referred to more of a logos type thing. But you have two versions of church history kind of competing each other as to what happened with the Codex Sinaiticus. And one is, I would say, kind of the more Catholic in the modern sense version. And one is the more non-denominational, uh, ultra-Protestant, kind of very ultra-conservative viewpoint. And they wrestle against each other. And if you look up Walcott and Hortz, or even in the whole Codex Sinaitis, you'll find on YouTube, you'll find lots and lots of videos on this, people arguing about this. And I just wasn't satisfied with any and, of them. And, and most people don't like Westcott and Hort. They were essentially uh, atheists or questioning everything while they were working on uh, their translations. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them atheists. I would call them Gnostics that they, they were within the church of England, the church of England in the 1800s had some of the best scholars ever. In fact, that's, I'm going to refer to some of them tonight. Uh, but they were in the trend, I would say of this same as the Catholic priest Lagrange, they were modernists and they were clearly trying to, you know, rewrite history. So, uh, Okay, so why don't we delve into uh, Tischendorf? What I'd first like to do is to go back, because you have these two points of view, I think you have to go uh, and examine these two points of view, because what they did is they, you ended up with two versions of Christianity in the Western world, two kind of stories or mythologies, even if you want to call it that. One was the, the Catholic version whereby uh, you have Peter and Paul uh, somehow making it way their way to Rome and they establish the papacy. And in 325, they have what's called the Council of Nicaea, which kind of locks down Christianity as to what the basic tenets of Christianity is for and how they're gonna organize uh, at the, at the time, churches were all over the place, and so they organized Christianity. The other opposing point of view is that the Catholic Church was a fraud, and always was a fraud, and it was a fraud by the Roman Empire, and that the real Christianity came through uh, what they called, you can, there's a video out there, you can watch it by Chris Pinto on the Tischendorf controversy, and his point of view is that the authentic church went through really what amounts to is the Cathars. And they, they misportray the So each side is sort of misportraying the other to some extent. Um, and so I think that what you have to do is you got to clean that up a little bit before you can go into stuff. Um, the basic view is that Western Christianity was started by either this uh, kind of ne'er-do-well group of uh, they believe are Bible believers, but really are closer to Gnosticism in, in a conservative way. And the other side is that the church was entirely made by the Pope and the Pope defined Christianity for the next 2000 years. And I don't think either one is entirely tenable. So, 
So where do we go from here in the discussion? Do you have anything you want to add to this, Karen? Well, I, I was just thinking before I got on here about in an email exchange, you said, Steve, that the diatessaron is the key to basically understanding all of this. It and is after a key. You yeah, it is a key. I don't know that it's 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 a it's a crucial part in all this. I don't know that's definitive or anything, but it's a crucial part to all this. Yes, uh, and that has to do with a lot of other readings that'll come up. Uh, what I'd like to start off though with, is with a hymn. Okay, this is an odd this is an odd sort of thing. Uh, and so, have you ever seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire? Yeah, long time ago, like in the early '80s or something. So in the United States, when we have a big affair, kind of a patriotic affair, or a big church convention or something like that, we may sing something like the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, we may sing, you know, you know what I'm talking about. If you go to a big affair of that sort of similar caliber in England, that's they don't obviously don't sing the Star Spangled Banner, and they don't really sing God Save the Queen either. What they sing is this. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here amongst those dark satanic mills? Now, that literally what they're saying there is that was Christianity founded by Christ in England before it was founded anywhere else. And, and you've oddly, actually you've actually found some evidence for that, correct? There is a set fair amount of evidence to that. And so I'm what I'm going to do is quote a little bit here from another book. And I, I, and again, this I don't want to call this stuff mythology because there's a, there's some points I think to all sides here, but this is something that people truly believe. Uh, on some level or another. So what I'm quoting here now for is the conclusions of a book called, and I, I think this is important because ultimately what we're going to end up with is with the King James Bible. And the King James Bible is a product of the Church of England. And I don't think you can understand why the King James Bible came to be without understanding the arguments that are going here. Because you, what happens if you don't, you're trying to plop it on two, two traditions that it's, it really isn't part of. Okay, so he's he's came up with some basic tenets here as to what he believes he can prove in this book, and he, he makes a fairly good argument. Uh, I'm going to read a few of these. One of them it has to do with Druid, ancient Druidism, and that Druidism, as it is today, is really a Gnostic religion. But back then, it was more just a philosophy that oddly enough believed a bunch of Christian type principles, but didn't have Christ. And so he's asking the question is how did this, what deposited this religion in England before Christianity? The other thing he's saying is that uh, England actually had a war. Here, I can just read it out. The only religions persecuted by the Roman government were the Druidic and the Christian. Uh, point four, that the common persecution of the great military empire, which Britain was engaged in, incessant hostilities from 43 to 80, 118. Uh, and it goes on to hear that the first planters of Christianity in England was Joseph of Arimathea, 
where he deposited in the Isle of Avalon and Glastonbury. And he goes on to say that, uh, that among the earliest converts of Joseph and his fraternity were Gladys Pomponia Gracina, the sister Gladys or Claudia Eugene, the daughters and Linus, the son of Caractacus, prince of Siluria and military dictator of the national forces against the Romans. So what he's making an argument here for, and then let me just clarify these a little bit, is that there's an ancient legend in England, and there, there is some substance to it, that early, that Palestine needed uh, tin to make its weapons and to make its pottery and things like that. And what they had is a trade going back and forth between that portion of England where Glastonbury and stuff is, and that at some point Christ had come along and did his early ministry before we being recorded in the Bible and around that area. And so there's no real documentation evidence for it, but it, there's evidence and legend. And oddly enough, some of it actually pulls through. It, it's not enough that you can uh, kind of firm it up for sure. But there, what happened is that there was a war going on for between England and Rome at that time. And, and the, the king of England eventually surrendered and they took him to Rome. And basically the whole entire royal family was deposited uh, in Rome. And when Paul goes to Rome, he actually goes and stays with the English royal family. So the belief is that uh, after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of these tin traders, actually took some of the relics and remains of Christianity, took them to Glastonbury. And that's where the first church was. So what happens now, in, in, so Rome gets going, Rome, the Roman Empire is fairly powerful, but we've got this in, impression that the early Roman Empire was this big powerful thing. But the fact of the matter is that about this time, the Roman Empire is in decline. And what happens is we are normally taught when you take uh, religion classes that the Catholic ch Church brought Christianity to England, but by the time uh, it was supposedly brought there by Augustine of Canterbury, but by the time he gets there, there's records there, plenty of records that it was already there, and nobody can quite explain that. So by the year, I think it's 225 or in there, what they, the Roman Empire was actually split, and he, the, the emperor of Rome had split, uh, deposited authority within his two sons, and one was in the east and one is the west. And having been to York, England, I know this for a fact, that you go to York, England, and uh, York, England was actually the center of the Roman Empire from about 200 on. Uh, so much so that when Rome got in trouble towards the end of the century, it was the English troops under the head of Constantine the Great, who went to Rome, fought the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, picked up the entire Rome, you know, sent, you know, the authority of Rome and moved it to Constantinople. Uh, legend has it that Constantine's wife or mother, I believe, was actually a Christian. Uh, and so what you've got, and even when the records show that after Constantine came, the, 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 his, the person who records the history is a guy called the Venerable Bede. 
in the end of the book, it tells about the conversion of England to Catholicism. And there's a big uh, conference called the, the, the uh, Conference of Whitby. And there they're arguing as to which is the authentic form of Christianity. And you can always tell this because they're always arguing about the dates of Easter. Somehow, uh, English Christianity had the dates, this very same dates the Orthodox Church used, and they were convinced to, you know, whether it was the power of Rome or whatever, but they eventually switched to the, the Roman Catholic version of when Easter was. The question is, is here you have a very strong power, enough of a power that's able to rescue Rome, move it to Constantinople. But so when you learn history now, you learn that it was Henry VIII who split from the papacy and that founded the Church of England. That's not really what the English people believe. And so when it came time to, to do the, the King James Bible, I think it's important to understand the fabric onto which that was made. They weren't kind of making this alternate thing as opposed to the Roman Catholic Bible. Or they were doing their own research and with their own means and their own methods and their own desired conclusions. So does that, does that make sense at all? Yeah, I think so. So I, I mean, never, I never would have anticipated that. Like I basically take away from what you're saying. Like when I'd even interviewed you, I remember that you brought up a book called St. Paul in Britain. Yeah. That's which what I think I it was, from. Oh, that's what you were quoting from it. That's what yeah, I yeah. thought when you were saying that. And it's like, so my understanding is basically what you're saying is that people or the King James version of the Bible, what gives it its veracity and authenticity is because of this like lost or unknown history about how Christianity was really based in that region. Yeah, well- Or like originated was, potentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that's true. The, the thing that I find objectionable is that, and we've talked about this, Jan and I have talked about this before with the Puritans coming over to Salem and, uh, and, and Plymouth Rock and things like that. The kind of the mythology for the United States is that they escaped for religious freedom. And I don't doubt to some extent they did, but what were they really escaping and who were they? Well, they were these, they were of this sect and I, there's plenty of scholarship to show this, that this Northern Reformation of Christianity was directly influenced by the remains of the Cathars and, and the Gnostics. So by the time you get to the American mythology and you have all these kind of non-denominational churches They've what they've done to the King James is they've cut a lot of it out. Uh, the Catholic portions, I would say, they've cut out as it, and then they present the King James in this kind of mutilated fashion, as if this is the authentic King James Bible, which it's not. And they they quote it and kind of support that it's it was exclusively written to support their theology, which it wasn't. So that that that's my main thing is that. We already have this, and even if you watch these videos on YouTube, you're going to see that that's the direction, that's the angle most of the King James people defend, and it's not a historically accurate defensible position. And so it becomes this kind of ultra-conservative um, portrayal, which if you understand the history of the, the, the King James Bible, it was a compromise. There was a compromise between these two factions where King James actually does this, this remarkable thing is King James actually was one of the most highly trained biblical theologians of the day. And even, even though he was being trained by this uh, Calvinist theologian, 
who didn't believe in rituals, they didn't believe in any kind of sacramental theology of any sort. And he was getting training on the side to see if this, his name was Buchanan, whether he was actually teaching him the right thing. So this tension, this kind of Logos-like tension of, you know, where you got to ferret out the contradictions and stuff like, made James one of the most uh, learned Bible you know, scholars of his day. So when he came up with the idea that he was going to write the King James Bible, he literally took the Catholic forces and pitted them against the Calvinist forces, um, you know, theological forces in England and, and Scotland, and said, you know, you guys ferret it out. You, I'm not going to allow anything in the Bible till you've argued it to death and proved that it's the theology can survive both, both of your criticisms. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. And so he tried. He he, he really healed England at the time because there was this, you know, kind of dispute between Scotland and England. And he, it basically not only came up with one of the best Bibles that's ever been written, he basically healed his nation by doing it. And that's really the context yeah. by which you've got to look at this whole thing. All right. So is here a good place to go into the Church of the East and uh, Tichendor exactly and, right. and Turk and the uh, issue of the Ottoman Turkish Empire? Yeah, no, that's exact. This is exactly the point we should do that. All right. Because what happens is that as these about the time of Martin Luther, there was a an, uh, Roman Catholic scholar named Erasmus. And he realizes that the Latin text is deficient. So now, and this is why you've got to see the Roman Empire in decline at this point, because there's no printing presses. Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, typically you think of monasteries and scriptoriums that are writing these things down. The average Latin Bible, a lot of these people couldn't read anything. They were just doing it. They were just doing it by rote. They would go in there and they'd, they'd write things that they literally didn't understand. Some of the Latin Bibles were pretty good. Some of them were pretty bad but they were just the best that people could do. They would, a lot of times people have said that they would have parties and invite people over. They'd get a copy of the Bible and one person would take one section, another person would take another section until they had a Bible. And then whatever errors they made would get passed on to the next family. And, but by the time of it, you know, a lot of times we anal, people analyze texts. You're basically, you look for, you know, one or two versions of something and you think you found something. But now we know there's 5,000 versions of the Bible out there, there you know, portions of the ancient Bible, which is an astounding number of artifacts that, to draw off of. So what you got to see, though, is that the, the Latin text was in various degrees of corruption, whereas at the Council of Nicaea and the, council, and, and the councils following that, they you had a basic problem between Latin and Greek. And so the Latins basically not understanding the Greeks accused them of heresy and they've just split off. Now, since then, even the Roman Catholic Church has apologized and absorbed some of these factions. But at the time, you have this separate tradition based, as we've said in the past, around Edessa and Nicebus that weren't changing anything. They were making very reliable documents, very reliable Greek Bibles. So when Erasmus comes along and realizes problems with the Latin text, he goes to the Greek and translates his own Greek version. And that Greek version is eventually what becomes the King James Bible, the basis of it, I should say. 
So we they th what happens is, as we've argued before, I said a lot of the time we owe scholasticism, a lot of this stuff came from the East. What we call Western tradition, a lot of people would say the King James Bible is the center of Western tradition. Its scholarship really comes from the East. So what's the difference really then between the King James and the Douay Reims? Because my understanding from what you said before is that the Douay Reims, it originates from the Septuagint. Yeah. What happens is you have two different versions. Of this, and, and really, none of them are 100%. That, I think one of the things is that Protestantism has sort of taught us that there's such a thing as a, a pristine text, that this is the very Bible of very Bibles, and we can somehow get back to that. And that's, that's, we can to some degree, but there is no perfect text. So the, what the happens issue is, is, is it's a simulacrum and you really can't get back to the original. There is no, we don't know of any first copy. It's right. copies of copies of copies of copies throughout time. Right. And so the modernists want you to believe that uh, historical criticism and literary criticism started in the 1800s. But the fact of the matter is, historical and literary criticism went back to the beginning because people from the beginning had to decide what was the best one. So the ancient Hebrew text, for instance, to answer Kieran's question, was actually all in Greek. The, the Old Testament was in, originally in Hebrew, but that Hebrew, we have no knowledge of what that Hebrew would have been like. We can recognize Hebrewisms within the Greek text that don't translate very well, but the text was all Greek. So around the year 7880, they start taking the Greek text and start translating it into Hebrew. And so in order to really get a good feeling of that, the Latin, the Latin Bibles are direct from the Septuagint, which in some places are more accurate. The King James Bible and Erasmus Bible comes is, is an attempt at trying to get back and incorporate Hebrewisms and things like that. And, and at some points they're successful and some points they've, in the same, I would say the same thing between the Dewey Reims and the King James. There's some things that didn't survive the, the squabbling when they wrote the King James. And now, I mean, it's pretty reliable most of all, but we can go into later some, some of the little things that I would say. Uh, you, you had Calvinists that weren't gonna allow a lot of sacramental theology through, and I would say some of that ended up better in the in the Dewey Reims. All right, so this guy uh, Constantin von Tichendorf comes along, and he goes to Mount Athos Peninsula in Greece, and essentially, from my understanding, stole at least this is the official version stole a copy of. Uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, correct? Right. Well, the suspicion of that story starts earlier than that. And the suspicion starts, I've, I've remarked this, all the, all the dubious characters in this situation all have, begin, have the first name of Constantine, which makes, it all, <laughs> which, which makes the whole thing odd. Uh, so you have basically a kind of a story where... And you got to realize, when, as this story starts, both, most of the players in this are barely teenagers or in their 20s. So, you, you know, take that kind of way, way what's happening. Here and, with. and didn't Tichendorf essentially discover more 
codices than just about anyone else? Yeah, but well, let, let me start at the beginning here because what happens, a, a guy named Constantine Simonides goes and he's going to publish a text, I believe it was in Leipzig. And he, he I, big, I think it was the Book of Barnabas or something like that. And so he has this copy to go publish and he's, he's barely in his teens. He's raised in orthodoxy. He's, he's a Greek scholar. He can translate anything up inside down. And he's going to publish this book that nobody's ever seen before. And the person he accidentally runs into is Tischendorf. And Tischendorf immediately says, this is impossible. It's a fraud. You're the biggest fraud that ever existed. And uh, where did you get this stuff from, basically? And Simonides insists that he's copying authentic materials. He wants to publish it. Tischendorf spoils the whole day. And so oddly, it's, it's, you can envision Simonides goes from here kind of ticked off. So that, that's, the, that's the kind of preliminary to this. Tischendorf would have you believe that he's just going uh, kind of randomly through countries. And I always think of the leakies trying to find first man, he's driving by a, a refuse pit and assumes that that refuse pit must be where the first man was. So he starts digging in this refuse pit. Why, why would you dig in this refuse pit? Well, why would you just pick up, out of all of is Christianity, why would you go to the, you know, just go target these places? And why would they even open them up to you? Well, you know, here's the thing is I've been to the gate. Mm-hmm of Mount Athos Peninsula. And, you know, that area is called the Three Finger Islands. They're really peninsulas. And it's about a 50-minute, hour-long trek, dirt road across the desert into Turkey. And, uh, but if you are not a monk and pre-approved, you don't go to Mount Athos. All right. You know, I mean, nobody goes there. It's it's and Simonides it's, did. And he, it's he ancient. Was... It's ancient monasteries, and it's totally closed off, though. Right. And Simonides had reputation. He had relationship that were a clergy there. He he was supposed to be one of the best translators of the day. He was very patriotic. Evidently, he he was you know very much honored. But by the end of the day, if you look him up in Wikipedia. He's the he's the most corrupt translator and forger in the history of humankind. Who is Simonides? Simonides, yeah. And so you got so you got a very difficult problem there. What happens is that we've got these two groups. Uh, the the let's call them the more Catholic side would say he was the biggest forger of all day. If you if you listen to the like this Chris Pinto and stuff. They portray Simonides as Simonides when when Tischendorf and I got to believe when Tischendorf goes to Mount Sinai to look at these things I I got to believe he was clued in on the fact that he really believed and there's evidence that he recal you know took back what he had said about uh, the books being fake because eventually those are the books that get published as part of the Codex Sinaiticus. All along, when he finds the original parts of the Codex Sinaiticus, Simonides says that he wrote them. He wrote the whole thing, and pretty much scholars have proved that that's that he was lying. And so the question is, why would he lie about writing a whole Bible? Now, there is another issue with 
Mount Athos and that it was under the control of the Ottoman Turkish Islamic Empire. Yes. And so that, that to me brings up the main question because one of the main books, uh, let's see if I can have it here. One of the main books that everybody seems to quote, and it's very hard to get because I had to get this from Mount Athos. Uh, you got that directly from Mount Athos. Yes, I got directly from Mount Athos. And it, it's, it's remarkable to me because there's some key questions posed by this book that I don't know if these scholars don't read the last chapter or what, because he pretty much says what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm a pretty solid ground on this. Um, so you got to imagine now Tischendorf goes to, to Mount Sinai and almost every scholar that I've been able to find admits he stole the text. What he originally did is he, he tore some pages out and gave it to his patron, which is, I believe, the Duke or the King of Alexandria, he calls the Codex Alexandrius, I believe it is. But he literally has stolen this. He sneaks it out of, out of uh, Mount or the Sinai. And in the meantime, he is, his design is to steal the rest of it. it but another, another Constantine who is a Russian monk comes down, he looks at this text, he says, it's all heresy. And he's I, one of the things I had to do to figure this out, and I, hopefully maybe I'll publish it all, but he wrote a pamphlet and took it back to Moscow to warn people that the Codex Sinaiticus was an entire fraud. Um, but that pamphlet doesn't exist. What I was able to find was a book he wrote, which you can just download from uh, archive.org, which is in Church Slavonic, written in all Cyrillic characters. And who knew Google could translate church Cyrillic and, and uh, Slavonic. And so I translated and I found the original thing where he calls, he has actually has pretty solid proof that the whole thing's uh, uh, is heresy. And they're trying to weave Gnosticism into Christianity, correct? Yeah, yeah. So now you got, now you're at the end of this, getting towards the end of the story. Tischendorf goes back and he's claiming to find texts that the monks don't know about. You know, these here's monks that live there constantly and, and they don't they don't have any place to go. And and and, and it's limited, extremely limited travel for outsiders in the whole Yeah, they weren't area. letting anybody in any right. even to this day you gotta be trusted before two thousand years later, they still don't let anybody in to Mount Athos. Well, and if you read the if you look at the ultra Protestant side of this, they'll say, Well, he, they found him in a closet or something like that, or that they're burning him or something like that. And people don't, they'll use the right word. They'll call it, he, he opened up the Geniza. And if you read and they'll, they'll portray the Geniza as being a, like a closet or something, a storage cabinet. But what a Geniza is, is, is an ancient Jewish custom is that they treated books as living beings. And when they used them up, they would bury them. And if there was heretical text, they would bury them too. And they would seal them all off so nobody could disturb them. Be, in their mind, it'd be like disturbing a grave. So these Gnizers were full of the remnants of ancient texts and the remnants of, of heretical texts that they didn't want to see the light of day. So in a sense, Tischendorf is admitting he's robbing tombs, <laughs> uh, book tombs, to find this stuff. And how would he know where these book tombs were? I mean, they didn't have Google Maps or anything in the 18th. Well, that's why I think the original story of Simonides and Tischendorf, I think he, I think he's claiming that Tischendorf or that Simonides 
uh, is a forger. And deep down, I think he knew he was onto something. And so he's following, I think he's asked, he's pushing Simonides who says, no, 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 I wrote all these things, they're all fake. Uh, I think he realized there's something to it. So he's sneakily going down to Mount Sinai and getting the text on his own. So is Tichendorf faking this stuff as well? Uh, let me, there's some very good books I found. Uh, where I got them here. And this is where you got to go back to the Church of England. Because probably the, the scholar and the, the, the evangelical, you know, Calvinist crew would all admit to this. Probably the top scholar of his day even though if you read the books on Tischendorf, they dismiss him as a crank, was a guy by the name of Dean John William Burgeon. And he writes a lot of books. Here's one, the traditions, traditional text of the Holy Gospels, uh, the revision of the revised. Most people don't realize that if you pick a Bible up today, a lot of them will say revised King James or revised something or other. These are all a product of Tischendorf. And so what John... John William Burgeon is claiming he's got the proof that the texts are remarkable. He's I've never read scholarly texts that go into it as deeply as where these texts came from. Uh, and one of the problems with it is Burgeon proves that the Bible, in a sense, doesn't exist early on the way people think it is. Is that when what the, these ultra Protestants are against is what's called liturgy and a lectionary so an electionary in a, a, you know a mainline church each sunday you would have readings so that by the end of the year you basically read the whole gospel's version of what's going on and so what what Burgeon shows is that many parts in the bible when where they it starts off well in those days or at that time or something there's a word that they don't translate which is archaic which is greek for begin here and so what these are is ancient lectionaries. And even though the Bibles don't exist, these lectionaries exist. So Tischendorf gets a lot of, um, a lot of mileage claiming he's got the oldest Bible, which he does. But it's, it's only one, the weird part about it is it kind of matches up with a Bible codex called the Codex Vaticanus. And so what Burgeon is saying is that the corrupt parts of the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus were written by the same monk. <laughs> and he says, how is that possible? Now, can you give us some examples of differences between the Codex Sinaiticus and, say, uh, the King James or Douay Rheims? Yeah, um, let me see here. I can, let me just read right the, the main one, if you, if you want to just look at and check it yourself, what Burgeon has a whole pile of, of list of all the things that have been corrupted. But the main one is if you've got a revised standard Bible, just look at the, the, the end of Mark. And what Tischendorf has basically done is he sliced off the whole last portion of Mark, uh, which has to do with the resurrection. And if you go through this stuff, you're actually going to find place after place where where you normally would have to make some commitment as to Christ's divinity or something like that, they basically have softened it all up. And I think Jan and I were kind of discussing it before. 
this is all oddly going on about the same time Karl Marx is starting to formulate Marxism and things like that. And it's oddly, it's odd that the texts that they're coming up in these new Bibles are oddly uh, sympathetic towards a Marxist point of view, if you want to put it that way. Well, Anyhow, let me, this is straight out of his book, The Cause of the Corruption of the New Testament. Numerous as were the heresies of the first two or three centuries of the Christian era, that almost all agreed in this, that they involved the denial of the eternal Godhead of Son of Man, and that denied that he is essentially and very eternal God. Uh, and then he goes on saying this is the, the core of Gnosticism. And so what happens is there's not a lot. I haven't gone through it in the sense of translate because most of the examples are in Greek. And, somebody, and I don't know that anybody's actually gone through them, translated them all into English to say, well, this is what's going. But in general, what they're doing is they're fudging all the, the, the hard bits. So that if you had to make some sort of commitment to something, they've softened them all up so that you don't really have to make a commitment, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's not a firm. Like accepting Jesus Christ's name. Right. And so what happens is the Calvinist charge is that uh, it's a heretical, it's, it's basically a softened text. Then they're right in that. It, I mean, they're, they're looking at this. They're missing the point of view because they aren't liturgical churches that use lectionaries. And so their preference is to see the Bible, you know, the King James Bible as the one authoritative Bible. And uh, that's not, you can't quite do that. So the other side is then they give Tischendorf and his followers believe they've got the oldest Bible and oldest means most authentic. Uh, Burgeon basically goes through all this and says, that's, that's not true. That's just, it just can't be true. It, it's, it's basically a subtle way of preparing the world for a more socialist point of view, I would say. Now, let's go into the Ottoman Turkish Empire and the Codex Sinaiticus. And you had said that Tichendorf wouldn't have been able to even remove the Codex Sinaiticus from Mount Athos without approval of the Ottoman Turkish Empire under penalty of death. Right. And this is from this book again. Okay. I had gotten this book with the idea, well, maybe Simonides was right. Uh, because I, I sort of, the only things I could really find that were, at least they believed they were honest, was that Simonides was right. He wrote this stuff and Western Christianity was following a fabricated text from the 1800s. This book actually shows that Simonides did not write the Codex Sinaiticus. It wasn't. So the question was, why then would he portray this as being written by himself and a, and a forgery? And I, it's astounding to me that people quote this book, the people who are able to so, get it. So what you're saying is that in order for him to get the codex out, he lied and said that he wrote it so that he could get it out of the... No, Simonides didn't get it out. Tischendorf stole it. Okay. But what's evidently what Simonides had done is he found a treasure trove of ancient texts, of ancient biblical texts. At, so what do you do if you're and so at this point in time, it's all the Ottoman Empire, which is Muslim, and you are at the mercy of the Sultan. What do you do with these ancient texts? And especially if you're 
if you're say hypothetically in process of transferring them to uh, Mount Sinai or trying to disperse them through Christianity or bury them and someone catches on to you. If, if you've found an ancient text in this point in time, and I can quote it from the book here. Let me just read a section of here. The discovery of these manuscripts and library may be considered as one of the most important events in the history of Simonides. It must be remembered that Mount Athos is subject to the Turkish government and that the sole law throughout the Ottoman Empire is the will of the Sultan and his officials. Uh, skipping a little bit, but under a government such as the Turkish, where law is slightly regarded and the property of the conquered people little respected, the proceeding most natural is that of concealment. So con control of the power of the Turks over the Greek subjects that life would be in absolute danger if it were known that a Greek had made a, such a discovery of property and not delivered it to the nearest officer of the Turkish government. That, he says despotism. Um, so what would you do faced with that? You just at Mount Athos, you discovered a bunch of ancient texts that would firm up the, the history of Christianity. Well, you, there's basically two choices, right? One is that he would sneak it out and risk being put to death. Right. Or the other is he would take it to the nearest Turkish official and have it taken to the uh, the Sultan and get it approved, which means that it would be an Islamic ruler approved text. Yes, yes. Wow. So the, the question is, what they're saying is that he, as much as he could, as the text uh, surfaced, claimed he wrote them. Because if he wrote them, he's not under the obligation of, they're not ancient documents. Right. So he doesn't have to turn them over. The question is that I asked Jan when I read that originally to him, I discovered that. What's Tischendorf doing? If he's taking these texts out of the approval, who's giving his approval? Because he didn't really steal them right off, you know, in, in, in sight. He begged to borrow them and he moved them to, to Moscow to have them copied and turned into a book he was going to publish. But once he did that, he said, I'm never taking them back. So they're not stolen like he snuck them out in a bag or something like that. They knew he was taking it. They, he just never brought them back. And almost any scholar I've read says, yeah, he stole them. Because he, and so as payment, he gave uh, Mount Sinai, the monastery in Sinai, a copy of this text that he, the original ones that he gave to all the, all the powers of Europe. But he never returned the documents. There, in fact, what happened when, when Russia was taken over by communism, they sold them to the English government and are now in a library in England. Now, you and I had also discussed a matter of the Dead Sea Scrolls being found in Jordan, which at the time, up until the Six-Day War, was controlled by King Hussein, a Muslim. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I have long suspected that the Six-Day War was just to gain the Qumran area so that they could claim it, but... You know, and then John Allegro, one of the first eight translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls, was best friends with King Hussein. 
So, you know, he's having regular meetings with King Hussein and whatnot. The helicopters and and whatnot are being provided as, as much as possible by King Hussein. And then, uh, so, you know, it leaves ample opportunity in both instances. These texts are found under Islamic-controlled areas. And then you have the Six-Day War, and suddenly the Qumran area goes to Israel. And I, I, I can't quite pull all this together. And so it's in the middle of me researching it. But you have to go, you have to understand the rise of these socialist states, some are totalitarian, uh, the empires of the and kingdoms of Europe are falling at that point in time. So Rome, for instance, uh, has been taken over what was called the Papal States at that time. What, it, it, the connection here is the Dreyfus affair, which I can't quite pull together, but it clearly has something to do with it. Uh, you, the papacy lost the papal states. A large degree, they, whoever, if you became pope, you admitted you were going to be sequestered in the Vatican. You couldn't leave because if you left, you were going to be put under arrest, which would be the end of the Roman Catholic Church. So they stayed in, in, in Rome or they, and if they did leave, they bustled around the countryside and wherever they were incognito under, under, and it didn't really get solved until Mussolini who gave, who basically established Vatican City and gave it back to the Catholic Church. The thing that I found that was questionable is what, what has France got to do with this? When you get to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there, there was, a, and even uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there was an argument, were they going to turn it over to the uh, Orthodox or were they going to turn it over to the French Catholics? Well, the question, why would you give it to the French Catholics? Uh, you know, why, why, why? Because the, the Vatican, because the Catholic Church was headed in France for. It, well, that's, that's my speculation is that if I'm the Pope at that point and I can't have Vatican City and there's no such a thing and I've lost all the papal states and I'm on my, I'm literally under house arrest at that point, maybe even fear of death, maybe, who knows? What would you do? Well, now, who was, who was threatening the Pope's life? Who would have arrested him or killed him? Uh, well, you have the, the lot, you have a lot of the Italian, oddly enough, the Italians were, that were left, it didn't want much to do with it at the time. Some did, some didn't, but it, Italy was very unstable at that point in time. So he, the, the, I, I don't have any specific name. It's the speculation that if you're under house arrest, what happens if you leave? It's that I, somebody, I would be scared of my life. Somebody just uh, posted that the Dead Sea Scrolls and Gnostic Gospels are inverted, and I would agree with that. Would you? Yeah. So, and, and by the way, thanks to Matthew and. Uh, who else was in here? Brian, Jonathan, Boru in the in the chat, who all uh, made uh, donations during the show. I appreciate that. Um, let me let me finish this thought up quick. So my my speculation is, what's the easiest path out for the papacy? And I would say, and I haven't found evidence of this, but it seems common sense to me, is that when during the 12th century and that era where you had popes and anti-popes. The best place for the popes to go 
was there was another Vatican. And most people don't know this, is that there was an auxiliary Vatican in Avignon, France. And it's still there to this day. It would have been an easy matter to go over there and set up the Catholic Church because they had done it once before. All the buildings are there. All the buildings are still there. So I, I have to speculate, why, if that's such an obvious solution, why didn't you do it? And that, that's what leads me to believe they were under threat from all over the place. Or you would just go over and do it. And I can't prove it, but my gut feeling tells me that's what's really behind the Dreyfus affair, is to make the Catholic Church look bad. So that Avignon, oddly enough, is a fairly sizable Jewish community. And if it's dangerous for the Pope to move there, he's not going to. So you, you rile up. It, the, the whole Dreyfus affair was taking a, a Jewish military officer and accusing him of treason, which was proved false. And it was kind of a big thing made out of a little thing. But he was not the only Jewish military officer. And in general, the oddly, what, what makes it odd for me is that all the prosecute, the, 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 I shouldn't say that the defenders of Dreyfus Oddly enough, were all people interested in archaeology and, and whether forgeries are forgeries. They, had, they were dipping their interests in all that. The, the big controversy at the time was France had built the Suez Canal, in, again, in a Muslim area. And they, they were riding so high, they thought they could build the Panama Canal, too. They got into the Panama Canal, and they ran out of money. So what happened is that there was a Jewish family called the Reinach family that basically taxed the French people to recoup their investments. And so they, when they were always convinced that somehow the Dreyfus affair had something to do with shutting down and taking the money out of the Catholics and, and salvaging the Reinach family's fortune. If you look it up, one of the biggest forgeries in time in history was one done by the Reinach family. So somehow you've got all these people dipping into uh, authenticity and archaeology. One of the most important books in archaeology at the time was written by the Reinach family. So it, it seems an odd, it seems like an odd uh, confluence of interests to, to say that they're separate somehow, but I've not found the thing that links it all together. Somebody asks if you would address claims that the New Testament takes place in France. Um, I assume that you're referring to books like the Holy Blood and Holy Grail. Oh, probably. Um, probably. Yeah, well, that was uh, Michael Badgett and uh, Badgett and Lay, and they we we discovered that they were uh, weren't they directly working for the CIA. Isn't that who we you maybe discovered that? But the thing that kind of got me on the whole thing, uh, the whole I mean, there's some good BBC videos on the book Holy Blood and Holy Grail. They were kind of, I think, trying to capitalize on that, as was the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Um, and so the, the thing was basically, and this is why I bring up this is one of the reasons why I brought the, ba the basis of English belief on the monarchy and stuff like that is that there's another path for the legitimacy of European monarchies. Most people don't know this, but there's no such thing as Muslim kings and queens and things like that. Any, any kingdoms in Islam are basically got their 
legitimacy through the, the, the British throne. That, and so what is legitimate about the British throne? Well, what they're saying, if you go back to my other story, is that the British throne was the first ones to accept Christianity. They literally believed outside of the papacy that that was the, you know, the bearer of authentic Christianity was the, the king of England in that. If you go to England, it, it's not, it, you can't see it anymore, but I've seen it, is that the, literally the, the throne of the king of England, queen of England, used to have a stone underneath it called the stone of scone. And the stone of scone has been taken back to Scotland. And, will, and when the queen dies and they install a new king, it will be brought back, put in the English throne. The myth around whether it's true or false, I think there's something to it, is that the stone of scone is actually the ancient throne of David. Wow. Interesting. And so their belief is that the authenticity of the, the British monarchy is that they've all been coronated from a path different than the, the Roman Catholic Church, and that they, they literally are in possession of the throne of David. Hmm. Now, so why you would think France, well, that's that, what was his name? I'm trying to remember, De Charnay, De Charisse or something like that. There's a very good BBC documentary on how that, that whole uh, holy blood, holy grail was just fabricated around bad, bad fraud in itself. Well, you know, and I remember reading something, I don't remember where it was now, uh, specifically outing Badgett and Lay as CIA, but they're painting this whole thing as a conspiracy, you know, regarding in their book, The Dead Sea Scrolls Deception, which it was a deception, but they're, you know, it's just like I exposed in my article, Spies in Academic Clothing, regarding the seven main books on MK Ultra. They're using a, a scapegoat or a bait and switch. Look over here when the real deception is here. You know, so Badgett and Lay write the Dead Sea Scrolls deception to cover up, you know, as a, to control the official narrative of. Well, weren't they, and you would know this more than me, weren't they in league with Robert Eisenman too? I think they were. Where the heck did I read? And we had talked about this maybe three or four months ago. We had yeah. found stuff that that explicitly stated maybe it was in their book uh it may have been in their book the dead sea scrolls deception that they were working for the uh, i think it CIA. was yeah yeah now i'm gonna have to uh uh let's see look it up here uh how do you spell their name i'm gonna i'll just pull this aside and look it up uh lay was i think l-e-i-g-h something like that yeah i could get the book quick yeah, you know what? I don't even have it in the database, it looks like. Let me see if it pops up. Not seeing it, but I know I came across that somewhere, and it may have been, like you said, in the Dead Sea Scrolls Deception, where they were basically... Oh, yeah, they there was a passage that you and I had found where they said that they were at, like, the CIA uh, office talking about all of this stuff you know well and here you got people that are kind of semi legitimized who are kind of dubious characters in the first place and they maintain that you're, they're hiding the fact that the the dead sea scrolls are going to prove that the catholic church is a fraud which they don't do and my whole basis of the church on the uh, on my book on the dead sea scrolls 
is showing that number one, they didn't allow anybody to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they finally released them in the 1990s, it, it didn't, they didn't back up any of the claims of Gnosticism that they made in the 40s and 50s. Well, and, and you know, that's why Eisenman and everybody had to sit on the scrolls for, oh, what, from uh, 1947 or 48 when they were so-called discovered by, wait for it, Muslim Bedouin boys. Right. Um, you know, Very dubious. And yeah. then, I mean, and, that uh, whole story and, but, is but, dubious. Too. But then, it, yeah, but then it goes all the way until the 90s when Eisenman works with the uh, Huntington Library to finally get the scrolls released. You know, and of course, Robert Eisenman worked with my former co-host, which another dubious connection there. But um, so the Huntington Library is about 50 minutes or an hour from me, and I've been there a number of times. But they held <clears throat> a copy of the so-called scrolls. But the scrolls from 1947, I forget what was it, 94 or something like that, they were locked up. So, you know, nearly 50 years the scrolls were locked up. And they must have been, you know, screwing with them or whatever. Well, what the, what the Huntington Library, I think, had was photographs of all of the scrolls. That could be. But the thing is, if you go back to the legend of the whole thing, is it's all based on the belief that the authentic Jews were camped out in Masada and that they were attacked by the Roman Catholic Church. And if you look it up, uh, and a very good book of it was published by the University of Wisconsin, showing that they made the whole thing up, that the the people that were hiding out in Masada were a, a lot of a lot of even biblical you know clergy and stuff don't know this, but Judas Iscariot is a misspelling of Sicariot, where Sicari comes from the the knife of the assassin, yeah. which is derived from the same thing. And so what was on really on top of Masada was assassins and terrorists that were terrorizing the Jews. And the Roman Catholic Church, Rome went in there basically to uh, save the Jews from all this travesty was going on. So right before World War II, they, they sent uh, agents in, secret agents in. One was Yigal Yadin, who basically were there to falsify evidence and create this whole uh, story about, and, and oddly enough, when the Dead Sea Scrolls are first proclaimed to be authentic, it's in the very minute uh, Israel is declared a state by the same secret agent, Yigal Yadin. So yep. all this stuff just has the stench of being something made up. So, well, get this. Here's another piece of icing or another bit of icing for the cake. Uh, so Robert Eisenman was one of the beats from like the Beat Hotel, the Beatniks, uh, working the – he was tied to uh, – you know, the pedophile murder, William Burroughs, and uh, some of this other stuff. But, you know, so he's, I have a book of his where he stayed at the Beat Hotel, where Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and Derek Raymond, Brian Geisen, uh, Peter Orlovsky, etc., were all at. You know, and Brian Geisen is, uh, uh, you know, outed as uh, CIA, working with Jiddu Krishnamurti, um, influences. And weren't they weren't they all connected with the Institute of Oriental Research? I th uh, think so. I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but Brian Geisen was, you know, hev heavily influenced also by Helena Blavatsky, the Theosophist, and he's also a uh, 
working uh, as a Fulbright scholar, you know, and then, but you've got all of these occultists and stuff at this beat hotel where Robert Eisenman is at. Now, occultists and theosophists who were there, you know, uh, Madame Blavatsky, of course, is well known for her work undermining Christianity. And then uh, you have Robert Eisenman behind releasing the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Huntington Library. So, you know, to me, there's a whole lot to question there. Now, I can't prove it yet, but, you know, when we, you know, you and I, like I said, you know, four months ago, we did our show on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Seelisberg Conference and all the people that were tied to, the, to that and the, the World Brotherhood and uh, Judge Neville Lasky and the, uh, uh, what was the, uh, the Codex? Uh, uh No, the uh, the other one that the the Lasky or the Gaster was it the Gasters that had Rabbi Moses Gaster. Oh yeah, yeah. And, they were just basically yeah the Cairo, the Cairo, the Cairo, the Cairo yeah the Cairo again, Ganizes again. Right, the Cairo Ganizes scrolls exactly. Which to just to interrupt quick when Solomon Zeitlin first goes and sees the whole Dead Sea Scroll things, he says these are scrolls stolen from the Cairo Ganizes. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised, right? That was the first comment. That was the very first thing when the top scholar of his day, the top Jewish scholar of his day looked at it and said, these are texts taken from the Cairo Geniza. And what's odd about and this is goes to my odd life. Here I am in the middle of Wisconsin, nowhere. And right across from the, I believe, very near the, I think it was in Berkeley, you'd correct, you know this better than me, uh, the Oriental Institute, the the monk that I used to take care of here, um, he was friends with Seraphim Rose, and in Seraphim Rose's book, he died. He was also a member of the Institute of Oriental Research, where Alan W. Watts and Ginsburg and all these people left, and he called them out as being all heretics and frauds. And he wrote an entire like five hundred page book on it, which I have and I've read it. But oddly enough, evidently very near to that is a spin-off uh, conservative Anglican Episcopal bishop in a seminary very close. And so one day I'm driving around, I actually have to, have to get him from O'Hare Airport and bring him up here. And he tells me the whole real story of Alan W. Watts. So yeah. like, you know, you Alan, talk about- I've got Watts's letter from uh, Aldous Huxley recruiting him to the CIA, and then he founds the Pacifica Foundation, and he was behind the whole Summer of Love uh, uh, boat thing. In fact, in fact, it was held at the you know Alan Watts uh, uh, Houseboat Summit, where they planned the whole Summer of Love. But is, isn't it the funny thing? What do they call it? Of, of uh, degrees of of familiarity or whatever separation, it is. Yeah, it's degrees like, of separation. So here I am in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I'm just taking groceries and stuff and picking this this guy up who's a monk who's who's one of the highest ranking monk in Wisconsin. He's, he's he's basically had brain surgery and all this stuff. He's a very good theologian, but he's basically running a goat farm. And and on the other hand, I'm just a, a chauffeur for a guy uh, for a bishop to get him up. In, and all of a sudden I realize I've got two degrees, if not one degree of separation from this big event that hardly anybody knows about. And it really was a pivotal thing, and it's this whole crime. 
So uh, we have uh, one question here. Uh, Under the Sun asks, would you mind describing the KJV in a few sentences based on your research? Um, I would I would defer to Dean Burgeon's remarks. He, he said it's not perfect. It's not ancient, but it's built on the absolute best research we could ever got. And that we should at some time uh, revise it and make it even better. But he said, there's nobody in the world he can imagine that could do a better job than what they did. Then, so then King James himself. Yeah. And so what his recommendation is, and I think I would have to concur with him is that you accept it as it is, as being as close as a mistaken humanity is going to get. And then you look at the parts that are a little bit error and you realize that there's other things out there. The biggest error I would say in the King James Bible is the Lord's Prayer. And that normally we translate that, give us this day our daily bread, where all the ancient Greek texts literally say, give us this day our substantial, super substantial bread, which means that the King James Bible misses that key point. And I would say that's my biggest criticism of the King James, is that clearly the Lord's Prayer is a communion prayer, a Eucharistic prayer. Delbridge asks, why do so many Christian denominations exist today? Also, God bless you all. And thanks, Del, for the uh, $10 uh, donation there. I think a lot of them, number one, I think that people's hearts kind of know a fraud when they see it. And I think so many churches have adopted the revisionist approach, and they, that just doesn't ring true to them. And so they go to somebody who thinks that you can get the fullness of Christianity just by owning a book. And so you have a lot of uh, quote unquote pastors running around, they buy the book and they somehow speaks to them and they think they're representing Christianity. Uh, they may be representing a part of it, more power to them to the degree that they are, but they're not really representing the fullness of Christianity. And so what happens, I don't think they have the binding education the binding system or anything to keep them together so they all spin off to do their own thing saramer says and this is going back to your point earlier the english monarchs are also baptized in water from the jordan river do you know anything about that i don't know anything about that i i wouldn't i wouldn't doubt it <laughs> from what i know all right and then i know there were some other questions that people had uh uh, Daniel, I know you had a question. Let me see. Okay, so Daniel asks, what of the uh, Orthodox Church? If you read the New Testament Pauline letters, many of those churches are still there to this day. How is the Orthodox Church not a way to the one true church? Thanks. Um, I wouldn't argue that they're not, I guess. I don't think any church is perfect. I think different churches are better things. I know we've had arguments and talks about the Mormons. Uh, the Mormons seem to have a handle on certain things other churches don't have a handle on. Well, everybody um, seems to have a handle on something and other things they're totally off on. Yeah, and I think the whole idea of having a one world church under these, it's kind of like the King James Bible. It's a noble idea. And if we could synthesize all these truths and we'd have a, but how are you going to do it? The, the, the fact of the matter is we're, we're human beings and we just screw up a lot. And I don't think there's anybody, even though it's a desirable thing, 
I, I was almost ordained in the Orthodox Church. Uh, and you, I, I was, and, and you ended I was up, within minutes. And, <laughs> Let's put it that and, way. And you ended up going with the uh, Anglican, you know, and I'd be really interested in going that direction too and checking that out. I think you had gone that direction, right, Kieran? Anglican. I visited an Episcopal church, but I've also, I've also visited a traditional Latin mass. I actually like that the most. The thing is, is that again, a lot of these, we're in such a decrepit state of all this stuff, finding of, like, like I told Kieran a while back, you may find one portion of your life that the, the Catholic church might be the best one. And you might, because you almost have to figure out who the priest is or who the clergy is and it may be in a baptist church even who knows the next week you find out the guy retires and the next guy is just no good and you find out the next place is an anglican church most of these you got to know what you're looking for and you got them in it which is kind of it's hard to i mean these talks like these help but it, it, it to find all this kind of truth is a, just a hard thing to dig up um i think the orthodox church to the degree because they were the repository of a lot of this stuff whereas europe was in confusion a lot of this stuff came back from the church of the east from the orth the church of the east is not the orthodox they're a portion of the orthodox church the the main division is between greek and latin and you need them both i mean there we we kind of it, think of the when they wrote the king james you needed the different sides to, to hone the to hone the knife in a sense to make it sharp I think all these things can, you know, we need them all to some degree, even though my preference is a more liturgical, a more ancient church than something somebody just made up. Um, but I would not deny that maybe at some point in life, somebody might find God that way and that might be the best right. for them. I've got a nice uh, Orthodox Bible up there and, you know, it's got, uh, you know, quite a lot of the apocryphal texts and whatnot still in it you know whereas for the king james you have to go back to a 1611 to find it and they're shoved in the back or in the middle well oddly oddly enough i have the orthodox study bible which you can order yeah and it has the orthodox everything in it but if you look at it it's the king james bible yeah i think uh that's what that's what this one is and i think it says that part of it is based on the septuagint and part is based on the kjv right is this the one that you have uh i have a i have one of the more original it doesn't have the old testament in it yet got it oh i can get this talk among yourselves <laughs> <laughs> so kieran you've been quiet so far you know the nice thing about the uh orthodox bible is it's got a lot of uh i got this one orthodox artwork and oh nice check that out this is one of the early ones and it does have all the icons and the pictures, and but it has fairly decent. Now the thing is, the Orthodox. This was put together by, I believe, Christopher Ware. What? This is the odd thing about these: the Orthodox Study Bible uh -huh. and these books. Oddly enough, these are all put together by Anglicans, who've who've uh, basically thought the Anglican Church was falling and failing them. And so they converted to orthodoxy. So some of the best scholars are still are orthodox Anglicans in the orthodox church. And that's kind of where I found myself for a little bit because they came to me and 
I had a bishop who had gone to Westminster Abbey and they were trying to reconstruct the authentic orth orthodox, uh, what, they, what they call the Sarum Rite, which is actually the oldest documentable liturgy. Uh, so I did that and I came up with a, a altar missile that's still published to this day. And some of the Orthodox church still use it. You know, it's, you know, when you compare the Orthodox Bible to say most of your modern Western Bibles, there are, I forget what I counted. There were like 16 texts that were yanked, you know? Well, you, I mean, you can, you can just pick up a, a Bible, any Bible that says revised standard or revised anything. It'll tell you. And the big problem when they wrote the King James Bible is that they had two Bibles to work off of. One was the Catholic, was called the Bishop's Bible, and the other was called the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was just filled with all these side notes and accusing people of stuff and all this other stuff. Pick up any Bible today, you'll see footnotes all over saying other scholars say this, other writings say this. Most of these things, according to Burgeon, are half made up. It's just some letters different or something, you know, that they're, they're you can... You say, well, where, where do I find the changes, what they did? Pick up any revised Bible. They'll tell you exactly where they changed it. It says actually in the book where they changed things. Oh, yeah. Pick up any revised standard Bible. Turn to the last, the, the end of Mark. It'll tell you exactly where they feel the last. They'll still have the end. Most of them will still have the end of Mark in there. They'll just call it dubious. Because of the Codex Sinaiticus. Because of Titian. It's all because of Tischendorf. And, and so what happened is, in order to get the Tischendorf's Bible put through, that's where you get the, the what's his name, uh, Westcott, well, Westcott and Hort. Hort yep. they, they literally came up with a new Greek lexicon to match that Bible to make it true, in a sense. So it's kind of like what's happening today. If you don't like what the term gender means, you redefine it. So they went through and redefined all these words to match, to make, to make it true, in a sense. Well, I'm just looking in the back of the uh, Orthodox Bible here to see if they put a note about that. No, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> there, there's no way they would do that. Yep, I didn't see one. It, it, the, the Orthodox Bible underneath has commentaries. Yep. But you won't, you won't see anything like, uh, this text is dubious, other scholars disagree with this text, all that. You just pick up any revised standard Bible. You're going to, they tell you. So I, I, what, where this started for me was way back when I was in high school is that they had, we had a Catholic military Academy in town here and they, they went bankrupt and they sold out to, to Southern Baptist and they would go up and down the street asking if you wanted to be saved or not. And they would actually send people over to my house trying to save me. And I said, well, if you can prove to me why the book of the book of John's Palm Sunday is on a Monday, I'll join the Baptist college. So they went out and they, they, they couldn't figure it out. Eventually they got me an audience with the president of the thing. And he insisted that the King James was perfect. And he just said he could understand every word of it. I, so I asked him, I said, why, why would, why would God write a book that you would that reduce it to everything you could understand? And he he told me someday he was going to find me bleeding to death in a gutter. <laughs> he wasn't going to save me. 
but wow, that's, that's... that sort of started my biblical research. <laughs> wow. So Dell is asking, uh, I don't know if we need to go into this, but thoughts on the Queen James Gay Bible? Do we need any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, well, we, I mean, that's we've, what we've discussed all that kind of stuff off. Uh, well, that's what Tischendorf has done. He's given license to anybody who wants to translate it any way they want. And and take it away from logos and natural law and uh, whatnot so that it becomes a socialist sort of anything goes kind of Gnosticism. Yeah. And, 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 I, and to put a cap on, I think that's why you end up with the I think it did stick. I think it didn't stick until before World War II at some point. And people started looking. We need, to, we need something to firm this up. And so now you get, and plus you have World War II and you have, so they, they fabricate half this stuff up. They fabricate, they, they have all these rap lines going in and out of the Vatican to because the modernists are beginning to get in control. And so they, they create a need and it fills the need. So somebody just asked if the Queen James Bible is real, and it popped right up in the in the search, but it's not loading anything for me yet. My computer's probably got. I too assume much it's work. a joke. Yeah. Well, my computer seems to be overloading, but <clears throat> getting back to the King James is that I, I know we talked about this once before, and you have an original copy of the 1611. I do. Which yeah. See, and most of the King James Bibles that you buy now aren't, aren't that. You can get them. Um, I've got a couple of copies. Let me grab that. This right here is uh, page for page, letter for letter, a complete uh, King, King James 1611. You know, and obviously there were... Uh, misspellings and whatnot that were later removed I, I'm, I'm not sure if i think it was in, wasn't until like 1637 before they had the errors removed like uh i think one of them was like they forgot to put the not in thou shalt not commit adultery and stuff like that you know they you know but there was a lot of uh well, it, errors and whatnot and it is in old english so you get your sf uh you know, things, it takes your mind a few minutes or a half an hour or so to start seeing the SF uh, changes because Fs used to be S's, S's, Fs, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Fs were S's. Fs were S's, S's were Fs, I should say. Yeah. But that, that you got to understand the King James Bible was designed to go along with this. And uh, what's, I can't see that. Can you hold it up a little closer? Uh, it's kind of hard because it's read on the first English prayer book. There you go. Yeah, this is the Book of Common Prayer. And, and so the argument was, you know, which is because the, the English church kind of treats the Bible as being the most important. But now that we know that these lectionaries were more because the first English prayer book, what they had is they literally had the lectionary printed within the Book of Prayer so that you walked through it uh, as it would have been. You know, and now that we know that the lectionary kind of preceded that. Now, if you can see the, this is a kind of a funny story. If uh, I don't know if you can see it, but you're gonna have to hold it up closer. You got too. I, much I've got light stuff. going into this. Yep. It's blurring it out. See, some of the text is too written in black. Yeah. There you hold go. It up, written... Hold it up a little closer. Closer. Uh, back off just a little. 
It's trying to get it, not quite. Yeah, but you can see that some of the text is written in black and some of it's written in red. Uh, the black is actually what you do during the service. The red are raw laws, what, what's intended, you know, the rules you don't break. And that's what was, that's where you get the name rubric from because they're rules written in red. Rube means red. So there was such a controversy when after they wrote the King James Bible, they have the infamous black rubric, which became controversial in England at the time. So they sent the Book of Common Prayer off to be printed. And it had a rubric in there that the Calvinists didn't like. So they, they voted on it and said to take it out that they couldn't have that rubric in there. So when the printer press, the printer came back with it, he just turn the ink into black so so uh, so they could get away with the rubric being in the bible it just wasn't read anymore see and just to show people this is uh written in old english you can read yeah. all about solomon's fong <laughs> <laughs> solomon's song but uh right. this is also published <clears throat> before english was standardized as well yeah so Isaiah looks like Ifaya, you know, stuff like that. But you get, you know, you get a, a used to uh, Old English pretty quickly. Your brain will start picking Adapt. it up. When my son was like seven or eight, he really loved reading the uh, 1611 Bible. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing is we, we want, it's really tradition that sort of moderates all these factions to some degree. And we, we want to believe that tradition is corrupted. There's, there's nothing to tradition, but Tradition sort of is common sense too. It's 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 something, it's something to say. Well, why you know why are we why is this not just a fad? Why are we? And so I, the the impression that I tried to make is that this isn't just a bunch of ne'er do wells coming from the outside doing this to be picked up by pilgrims or Puritans or whatever. That this there is scholarship behind this. This is a well thought out thing. Well, let's. Let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up because what was it? Three, almost four years ago, three and a half years ago, I did a series on Salem showing that the pilgrims weren't Christians, that they only used the first five books of the Tanakh or the first five books of the Old Testament. But <clears throat> this whole Salem thing, well, they've whitewashed that the pilgrims weren't Christians and for the last nearly 330 years, the Christians have taken the blame for the actions at Salem when it was really human experiments going on at Harvard from what my research found. They were doing inoculation experiments and, and uh, Cotton Mather uh, was the grandson of the guy that founded Harvard. He was Benjamin Franklin's uh, mentor. He was in charge of the Salem witch trials and they found what was it 17 or 19 bodies in ben franklin's basement and people can look that up it'll pull it right up to the smithsonian institute website and you'll get a nice whitewash article there that plays down why there were 19 uh, skeletons buried in his basement but you know it looks like that they were doing human experiments and whatnot um, and we, we were talking about that one day. I don't know if that made it to one of the podcasts, but you were asking me if I knew anything about um, 
the people that at Salem and the Plymouth Rock and so I said, well, oddly enough, I had actually been to the city and the, the, the place where this all started. I, and I, this wasn't something I'd planned to do, but the, the whole movement was started by William Bradford. And I, you asked me to do a little bit research and I found a paper on that showing that the religious persecution that we all adopt as Americans as being licensed to, to reinvent the church the religious persecution was basically uh, Bradford didn't want to wear a surplus anymore. So it uh, looks like it was uh, 12, 1,200 pieces of bone from at least 15 people. And keep in mind that Ben Franklin's brother James is who founded the Satan the American version of the Satanic Hellfire Club and is where we get yellow journalism. Well, here, I want, I want to show you a book here quick. Um, this is Oxford. I mean, if you want to look at the gold standard of books, supposing and they've published some crap too, but Oxford University is considered the gold standard of publishing. Well, this is Oxford University Press. There's Oxford on the top. And the title of it is The Alternate Trinity, Gnostic Heresy and Marlowe, Milton and Blake. So the, the thing is, and here's another book. Uh, this is uh, the published this is a scholar it's McFarland I don't know what the university behind it is but this is the English Reformation and if you see here Bogomil Cathar influence on Wycliffe Langland Tyndale and Milton. I can't read backwards right? Milton Milton okay so the thing is is who are these guys well Wycliffe and Tyndale are the original people who tried to write the book, the, the English Bible. And what they were accused of is actually in uh, slipping in Cathar doctrine, in the, and which is why they were considered heretics, is that it'd be one thing if they were translated to English properly, they, but they weren't. They were slipping in Cathar doctrine. One of those was the Lord's Prayer, the, the, the revision of the Lord's Prayer. Um, it, it's... It, it, it's not like this stuff isn't known about. It's most of the stuff that I've been finding is just nobody's connected the dots. It's all there. People have done the research. Karen. I guess the only the thing that I, I've kind of been going back to Codex and Atticus, where I guess if I could kind of summarize based off of the research that you sent me, Steve, because you sent mm -hmm. me that lecture series that I went through you know, yeah. the whole thing. And that was basically his conclusion. Well, that, why don't you give the name of the lecture series for the audience? Wasn't it the case against Sinaticus? Yeah, it was one of the, yeah. When I research stuff, I actually do try to give the alternate point of view some credibility. And that was the paper. And I said, this, this has the air of truth, but something's wrong with it. And so we read, we kind of read through it together about the same time. And it had, it, it caused me to wonder why they, they were basically promoting the idea that Simonides did write it. And I haven't gone back and revisited that yet, but I think. But he changed I, his mind, though, because it yeah, was basically he did his mind. Yeah, basically, he was saying at the time when he first started looking into it based on the books that he was reading about it was that the Codex Sinaiticus was an 18th or 19th century forgery. But then he flipped. Then and he then he, exactly and right. then he has like four more lectures after the series you sent me. The one you sent me, I think, had like five or six. 
Yeah. And then he has like four after that, that I also watched. And that's when he flipped and he gave the reason that he did, but he wasn't saying that he thinks that Tenaticus is legitimate. He was just saying there's not enough sufficient evidence to prove that it's a 19th no, but century I, I forgery. Think if I remember right. He did bail out though on some, some basic things. That's I, I think I asked you, I can't find any reason why he bailed out on this, that there was, there was certain clear points he made that I thought had some weight. Well, he really, he didn't trust Simonides character, like kind of what you were saying, where he's known as being a forger. It wasn't just yeah. with Sinaticus, like the guy was known, he, he really, you know, he didn't have a, he didn't have good character. So he was kind of saying that he placed too much emphasis on that, on yeah, Simonides testimony. And I'm kind of fluid on that yet. I still, I, right now, my, my thought is Simonides was an honorable person. He just was up against the, the Ottoman Empire and he, he kind of was weighing, do I, do I get killed for doing this? Uh, do I save the text and risk, you know? And so, you know, in Greece, they still, a lot of people still look at him as a hero. That I, I think that's probably the better explanation that he was up against the, an Islamic empire that would have not only killed him, but basically destroyed the books, which we know that's, that Islam does that. They'll, we're, there was a whole valley of statues and stuff that they destroyed, you know, going back to Babylon and things. It's, they don't like something, they get rid of it. So I think Simonides really legitimately was looking back and saying, what, you know, to who do I owe my allegiance to? Do I, do I save these texts? The book maintains he buried them all somewhere to be found at a later date, that, but some of them it did get out. So you think that he was trying to do something? I think like... he was trying to do something honorable. Okay. But it was the holy lie, I guess. I don't know. The holy lie. I think lie. he just couldn't. I don't think he could find his way out of it. I don't think he could find a way of saving the text without. If he admitted the texts were real, then he was breaking Islamic law. But do you think for for him to so go that, through? But the question, like we mentioned earlier, is did he go to the sultan and get islamic approval for the text and then this is where the I, no, I would not simonides i would say tischendorf almost had to go get how did Tisch, it's not simonides because i think simonides was legitimately trying to run a fraud to 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 you know to kind of a three-card monty type thing which which cup is the real thing under but i i can't see how tischendorf left the Ottoman Empire, which nobody seems to be asking for some reason. I think that is the crucial problem here. How does how does Tischendorf leave the Ottoman Empire with the entire Codex Sinaiticus without the approval of the Sultan? Yeah. How does he do that? And that was my takeaway is that that's really, that's the crux of the issue just from this conversation where it's like, just because there isn't enough evidence to say that it's a 19th century forgery for it to have to go through Muslim approval for well, the release you, of the documents, that's obviously going to... Well, you know, like, and to solidify that, so in my shows with Lloyd and Todd and, and you know, a year or two, a couple years ago with Steve, we went into the, the Gnostic infiltration, infiltration of this stuff, and I have images that uh, Lloyd found of, of in, in, the, in Sharia law, I think in the Way of the Traveler or whatever the book is called... Uh, that straight up discusses how Islam is a Gnostic religion. And then we see this Gnostic influence coming in through the Codex Sinaiticus. Is that a coincidence? I'm, I'm never a good coincidence theorist. 
Well, and that, that, and I would add to that, that you know, all these Gnostic books that they keep finding, whether it's the, not just, there's only two, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Sinaitic, you know, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, but you start looking at the Gospel of Thomas and you start looking at uh, the Nag Hammadi things, which really I think was the desire of the Dead Sea Scrolls to legitimize the Nag Hammadi things by claiming that they were both the scenes and that they were heightened, had some scurrilous plan of hiding all these texts in, in Egypt and things. But the big, if you just check history, the big corrupter of religion was Hermeticism, which every occultist knows. You pick up any book in the whole world on the occult, and it, Madame, from Madame Blavatsky on down, they are all getting their theology from the Corpus Hermeticus. Right, and the and and the Hermes texts have been proved uh, false or forgeries. Right, I've got the whole argument within the the book on the Dead Sea Scrolls of what exactly Casaubon had figured that out. But the the, the interesting thing is, you know, you've got upwards of five thousand dollars or five thousand examples of New Testament texts, why would one or two win the day? You find right. one text and all of a sudden well, that's and, the and, truth. And when you read the Nag Hammadi stuff, it's clear that it's it's essentially like Gregory Bateson's double bind or that was also sold by, promoted by Alan Watts to cause a schizophrenic break when you're reading this stuff because it's not leading you to a logical rational conclusion about logos and reality it's leading you to this kind of bizarre magical confused uh state it's yeah exactly right but the thing is also is imagine i'm just some crank and i write my own history of america or something like that and not based on anything not whatever and 2,000 years ago, they find thousands of texts on the authentic history of the United States, and they find mine. And all of a sudden, they say, well, all these other 5,000, I mean, why would you trust one guy, one copy? Any, any one person could write anything they want. Well, you know, unless it's all cited to sources that, that, that they can find and verify and go, oh, yeah. that's why Steve wrote this. Yeah, right, right, exactly right. Which is why primary sources are such a, a key issue you know it's you know and you and i have talked about uh professor anatoly fomenko a number of times and he shows how they basically just planted fake texts all over the place to rewrite history yeah well i think that's that's as we talked about i think the thing is is you have who one of the famous, I, I've got a friend who's an arch Democrat, and he keeps telling me that history is written by the winners. Well, I, I've come to disagree with that. I think history is written by the guys who own the, the printing presses. Yeah, well, <laughs> you good know? point. Yeah, good point. And if you own the printing presses, you can, you know, most of the books that we have today are fake. They're, they're, they're published by friends of friends who happen to have access to all the, the, the publishing houses and stuff like that, and they'll pump them up into being bestsellers. Oh yeah. Uh, I know I don't sell a whole lot of books uh, and I price them cheap, but you know, and they're all, I, I don't quote anything, but very good sources. And it, it's just that you lead to other conclusions and what they're telling you. Well, in the database here, mm -hmm. I have a section called publishers 
also intelligence cells. <laughs> right. So, you know, there you go, right? And, well, who was um, who was the biggest pusher of um, communism as being authentic Christianity? It was Look and Life magazine. You can buy the you can buy the the whole Vatican II thing is it, and they literally spell it straight out. That look at this early Christianity was socialist. Who knew? Who knew? Well, know? yeah. Oh, and and that's because we found these fake documents that we planted at Qumran that these Islamic Bedouin boys discovered and. Now yeah. we can prove that, you know, that the uh, Qumran community were a bunch of uh, uh, extremist uh, communists and, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't defecate on on holy days and all of this kind of stuff. So they just, you know, whatever. I, when, what started my research in all this thing was I was at the seminary and I just couldn't make sense of what they were telling me. So I decided I'm just going to do my own research. And I wanted to start with the most controversial thing I could find. And so being kind of science-minded, I started with the trial of Galileo. So I found a book by Galileo's trial judge, Robert Bellarmine. I ordered the book and it came here was the original book, was 400 years old. I've taken it all over the place to have it authenticated. And everybody tells me the provenance is wrong. And I said, well, it's authentic vellum, it's authentic leather, it's authentic everything. They said, the writing's authentic, the notes inside are authentic. And they say, well, yeah, but you have it. <laughs> if, if it was real, it would be in a museum. You wouldn't have it. Now, put that up against the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, in some places, they had eight of them originally. Well, and then they had seven. And then they shipped them up to uh up north somewhere manchester just, or wherever i forget well then they went to syria then they came to the united states for a while well and not uh, only that a bunch of them were sold and spread out everywhere and then they tried to get them back later on and this and that well and then i documented there was one area where they went to a uh an orthodox monastery of some sort and he was noted to have case suitcases of old documents <laughs> and so that the, the the chain of custody of these things couldn't be any worse. The chain of custody of the Dead Sea Scrolls are far worse than my book on St. Robert Bellarmine. I mean, at least it says who owned it in the cover. It's got the, the library stamps. People all over the place, you know. And plus the thing I haven't mentioned is that really Tischendorf was in this school going, I think I discussed them once, of F.C. Bauer, who was the original modernist. And he's the one that, that influenced Ernst Renan. And he went he literally went the 1800s to, to seek out the Dead Sea Scrolls before anybody else, all based on this Gnosticism. So, I mean, you're always suspicious when somebody sets out to find something and goes to one place or you know, one, one area and says, aha, I found it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> why, why did you look there? Well, you know, because they knew it would be there. Right, exactly. Because it was put there to be found right. by some hapless Bedouin boys who threw a rock into a cave and it fell down and cracked open a great big jar. And they freaked out because they thought the cave was filled with ghosts and then brought their older brothers back and climbed down in there and found all these scrolls. And then, ta-da, you know. And the chain of custody and the provenance matters not. Right. Yeah, it does get pretty ridiculous, so... Anyway, uh, anything else we want to add, or is that a good place to wrap it up? Uh, I'm here as long as you want me, but I, I, I could wrap it up at this point if you want. 
Ah, my back is getting stiff. Kieran, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I think I that get was a better camera. I look terrible on this. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I didn't. White. I should. I didn't do my hair this time. So <laughs> it's like okay. I got this light, like yeah, it's right it's kind of it's kind of. I'm not that white. Bleeding out. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I talked to you, Sarah. I don't think I'm white. <laughs> funny yeah you have said that before <laughs> oh my uh, gosh i didn't really have anything else to add my biggest thing was thinking about the diatessaron when you said that in the email and then oh yeah no that's a good you... point to bring up is that here it is um I, I should have said this before when you asked the diatessaron wasn't known about until the late 1800 nobody knew about it and they knew about it but they didn't have it okay Okay. So here, and to some degree, might say it's a little bit heretical and stuff like that. But it has another path. It goes to the Church of the East, has nothing to do with Western Christianity. It's got its own heritages and all this other stuff. Western Christianity knew nothing about it. They, they knew somebody had written it, Datation had written it, but they never saw it. And it's even mentioned in these books I'm reading that they wish they had it because it, maybe it would prove something. Well, now we have it. And what it shows is that the very books that Tischendorf says are not original to the Bible are in the Diatessaron. He's quoting the, these chapters of Mark that he said aren't, aren't original. Well, where did they get it from then? Yeah. You know, then it, it, they, they weren't subject to the Pope and they weren't subject to all this other stuff. It was a whole different direction. It came from a, an area the West knew nothing about. And so around the beginning of scholasticism, all these things start coming back and they still didn't have it until the later 1800s. So now here it is, it shows up and he's quoting these chapters in Mark that Tischendorf said didn't exist. Well, where'd they get it from then? <laughs> I did, I just thought of one other question well, too. When you were saying that about the, the Latins basically called the Greeks like that, or they said that they were heretical. But you didn't really give a reason why, though. Do you know why? The heretical is too strong a term. What happens is that there are, from what I've been able to discern, there are good Latin ones, but the Latin text is called the Latin Vulgate. And what's happening is you're not writing, you're not writing these texts in in educated language. Most of these things are written in vulgar text. That's what Vulgate comes from that it's a text basically designed for the people. So what you have to understand is that how the Bible gets disseminated in the West is different than how it gets disseminated in the East. And so what happens is they're confused over time which tradition should follow. Gnosticism was very early. And so a lot of times there, some of the texts have Gnosticisms creeping in, her heresies creeping in. It's not, I would say it's not out of purpose. It's not out of design. I think the Codex Sinaiticus, however, was out of design. Uh, what, what Burgeon specifically says, and I know this to be true because this is what happened in my Greek class. The, the Greek professor was specifically uh, calling Origen a church father and he was calling him a saint. 
Uh, and everything was going through this, lit this litmus test of what Origen would have said. Well, if you check it out, Origen was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. I read that because I read one of Bergen's books. I didn't read the whole thing, but that traditional text of the Holy yeah. Gospels, he went into that about Origen yeah, yeah. too. Oh, that and, was interesting. And so it was Origen a heretic. Well, he was a very yeah. good scholar to begin with, but then he moved to Caesarea where he started becoming Gnostic. Yeah. And, and, and that he says that in the book. And it's a very scholar. You've seen it. It's a fairly scholarly book. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So the point of the matter is, where did, where did the Codex Sinaiticus come from? Well, it's quoting origin all over the place. Yeah. So Bergen specifically. That was one thing I forgot to bring up. I was thinking about that, but I didn't take notes and I didn't finish yeah, yeah. the book. But that was like the biggest thing. That was my biggest takeaway when he was talking about this origin character. And I'm just like, wait a minute. This is another aspect that going well, through all the, the lectures original, and stuff they didn't my original that. greek professor was trying to pass him off as being a an early church father well what's yeah. an early church father being origin wasn't specifically condemned within his lifetime so they don't technically they don't condemn somebody as a heretic that was never told that he had to change clean up his act so origin was never told to clean up his act but later on his teachings were condemned as heresy so yeah. was origin a heretic technically not but his yeah. teachings were yeah and so uh and what Bergen insists and he, i've read most of all Bergen now um specifically says is that all these are from the school of origin yeah and origin was by the end of his life had converted to very gnostic ideas like the pre-existence yes. of souls and you know very platonic kind of things his biggest criticism, I didn't bring it up tonight, but his biggest criticism is that the not the, the Tischendorf's Bible and different ones derived from that basically take the logo section of John and beginning was the word and they rewrite it subtly so you can hardly change it, but it leaves the door open for saying that that the logos is a created thing and has nothing, you know, it's a secondary thing that Christ being the logos is a secondary thing and it's so what they're leaving the door open for is, is, it's not like they're nailing down Gnosticism, but I think the reason it was desirable for the Marxists and the socialists is it left the door open for socialism. Yeah. And that, that was purposeful. And Bergen would agree. So I, I, I hope I haven't gone off too deeply. And, but I think as you know, and as you know, you, having read, read the text, I think you know that I'm not quoting things out of thin air. I'm quoting things. No, you're not. I mean, that's why yeah. I took the time to interview you. It's yeah, like yeah. you're one of the few people, you know, I mean, when you get into religion in general, people get so dogmatic. And I even learned from you that isn't necessarily a bad thing, like dogma, we say that. But dogma just means teaching. It's, I we, know. Yeah, we, but we, just. We say it's strict or something. I should say, like I should say rigid. People like yeah. are like so rigid and it's like i just love how you're able to like you can tell that you're you're trying to live out logos like you're just searching for the truth and you're just and i've read a lot of books like when i've read your books i've read a lot of what you reference like sources that you reference and like you said you're just you're just the messenger you're just saying what's already out there but mm -hmm. you are trying to connect the dots and like you said you're just coming to different conclusions than a lot of the people that have investigated this stuff. Yeah, and when I look researching the Codex Sinaiticus, I mean, I'm still not trying to make change some ideas here and there. I mean, what I know I'm pretty solid about now, 
but I'm open. I'm, I'm literally open. If you can prove something to me, to me, I'll change my mind if I have to. I mean, it's, it, I don't, but with that's, that attitude, what I do believe, and I eventually gets polished and gets shined up until, you know, you can't prove me wrong because I've already, it, I follow the truth where it goes. That's the whole point of logos is you follow the truth, not your preconceived conclusions. You know, yeah. you're, you're following the path. Right. And it's never, it's it, not let me down yet. So, I mean, right. You know, it's like how many times on this show over 14 going on 14 years now, have I had to change my opinion from discovering my own previous work was wrong and you just own it and say, here's what we have. And here's why I changed my mind. But who better to teach it then? Right. Because exactly. you know where you know where this you know where the weakness is. And yeah, you know exactly where you fell into the the rabbit holes or the you know the pitfalls or whatever, and uh, and then why you know it's just like the entire the entirety of the psychedelic revolution being the real MK Ultra project, and I've spent a decade now exposing that, and I still get attacked from people who refuse to look at any of the work that i've published on that for a decade yeah and i have the problem is that you know when you see something it's like a your light bulb goes on you want and you want to share it you want to tell people you want other people and I, my problem is like well why can't you see this what am i doing wrong why can't you know? <laughs> so boro boru says in the chat i heard it said the truth is revealed at the contradiction well put exactly right yep a contradiction is always a sign of a lie or an error, and there are no contradictions in nature ever. So whenever right. you see a contradiction, the, it just means you have to dig until there are no more contradictions. I, I would add one thing, because I, I, sent, I, I sent a letter that I sent out yesterday or this morning or something like to both you guys and to comment. There, there are contradictions out there that we're not going to figure out. Yeah, and it's just a nest that's just a necessity. What yeah. did you call that again? You what I looked up the YouTube video, but it was something I wish I maybe I should pull up the email where it said that. Well, the, the thing is, is that even before you can find this is the teaching of the scholastics, which goes a little bit beyond logos. And the teaching of the scholastics is that before you can decide if this thing is true or this thing is false, or if there's a contradiction, you have to first have the, the capacity of saying, what is this thing? And they call that whatness. Yeah. Uh, and biblically, if you look up the manna falling from heaven, which everybody translates as the bread from heaven, well, the first, that's the second definition. The first definition of manna is what is this stuff? Yeah. Well, and, and so then that's where the, the psychedelic revolution, MK Ultra people and guys like Dan Merker, et cetera, jump in and then say, it was mushrooms, you know? Yeah. And that, well, no, it's, it, 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 it's making a philosophical point that somewhere the mind has the ability and I, I've not found a good reason or a good explanation for it. And I don't think anybody did. I look at a ball and I know it's a ball. What's yeah. the mental process for doing that? And before I can decide if this ball is a contradiction or not, I have to have this prior talent of being able to discern whatness. And so if, if all I did was take, this is a contradiction, this is not a kind well, that's not much more than a computer can do, but only man can look at something and say, I know this is genuine. Yeah. I know that I know the heart that's, of this. That's person. what the epiphany is, right? Yeah. I, I know I, you know, eventually I can look, I, I can look at Kieran. I just, I just see a very genuine person. Um, 
uh, all this kind of thing. And if you look up in the Bible, when it talks about the spirit of the Holy Spirit, it always talks about the spirit of truth. And I see the spirit of truth as being that thing that enables me to look at somebody and saying, yeah, this is a, this is a sincere, normal person to sit, to, you know, not to get into racial stuff, but beyond race and beyond gender and saying, I, I see a sincere person underneath. I see something worth, worth being holy. I see something worth being revered or something, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that's, that's not a talent that you can learn. I mean, you maybe get better at it somehow, but it's got to be, and that's literally what baptism was supposed to give you originally, yeah. this, this, abil this ability to, to see. Well, and to wash your past sins away so that you could start fresh and see and walk that path of logos. Yes, well, that goes into what I think the original sin was. I think the original sin was literally this egocentric predicament that I don't know what's over there. Well, if you believe yeah, well gnosticism or the denial of reality like we discussed before there's nothing over there right. it's right. all a figment of your ocular uh nerves and you are god and uh, and what they're discovering now is the eye steve, literally is a portion of the brain and you're steve you're just a figment of my imagination this whole conversation Stephen karen was me talking to myself there's your there's your primacy of consciousness point of view from the gnostic leftists and the yeah. deniers of reality and steve and kieran you don't have any of your own agency it's all just me i'm me and there's only one thought and one philosophy because it's all me if that's not the most egoic narcissistic horse crap you've ever heard in your life but that boy. you know that's what they're peddling but you know what that's what they're peddling and it's and the denial of reality is you and Hans and I and, and Kieran exposed on the last couple shows is schizophrenia. So, well, I warned you when we started this, this was going to be a two hour lecture. So, well, there you go. We're at two hours <laughs> and one minute. We should probably wrap it up here. I did want to say I found it. You, it was Godel's incompleteness theorem. That's oh. what you were. That's really when you sent that last email. I'm like, oh, I need to look into that. that uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I probably the only person in the world I think that has said that. Gödel's incompleteness theorem and uh, Occam's razor and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle are really the same theory. I know. I was like, okay. And I think it is. It's it's based. Gödel's incompleteness theorem just says you can't. Did you look it up? I well, I did, and then I didn't really. I didn't have time to watch it. <laughs> I was that, going that, to, but that I a complete yeah. theory, a, a, a perfect complete theory that makes is necessarily false. And he's okay. proven mathematically that you can't, you need that thing from the, you need that whatness from the outside. You can't just tie everything up and put a ribbon around it. There's always, there, there's always something beyond just the binary true, false, yes, and that there's something outside that, uh, I, I wrote a paper for about 10 years ago. Somebody had this on the internet saying this was a proof of God, not understanding what he was saying. And I refined it for him that this actually, it actually, I think, is also another way of saying the ontological proof, which mm -hmm. most people don't know. Do you know the ontological proof? Well, when you sent me the Philosophia Perennis, that's kind of when I got more into understanding what ontology yeah. was. I didn't really know what that meant until then. The ontological proof uh, basically says, it, 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 
because scholasticism really goes back all the way before even the, the scholastic time. And one of the early scholastics was Anselm of Canterbury, another Anglican. And he came up with the ontological proof, which is logically perfect, but everybody thinks it's crap. <laughs> okay. And what he's been, his ontological proof is, I think there is a God, therefore God must exist. And you go into it, and you think this can't be right. But he's not talking about reality. He's not talking about you or me. He's talking about that you need this other thing. You can't just compare this against that and say this one's right and this one's wrong. You need that third thing out there to prove what, which one's right and which one's of, you know, not. So if you take all supreme truth that there is in the world, somewhere you have to say, I cannot know which one's right and which one's wrong unless I somehow know intuitively the supreme of most truths. And that must be God. Wow. Otherwise, my reasoning would be completely void and crap. So if you look at Anselm's ontological proof, you now can see that that is really Gödel's incompleteness theorem. That's really Occam's razor. That's really a Heisenberg uncertainty principle that there's only certain things we can understand. But in this idea of comparison, comparison A against B makes no sense unless you can say they're both aspiring to some perfection. And being we're talking about the highest of all perfections, we wouldn't know ultimately what's right or wrong unless that third perfection exists somewhere. Do you think that that also relates to when you've spoken about prime matter and how it's like digging too far into the details, how that like leads into insanity? Yeah, the well, prime matter was the, the, the ancient, uh, what would you call it? It's not a creation, but somehow um, they believe that the world was tied together with a matter that was just before existence. It wasn't really it was somehow thought it was somehow real it was but you couldn't quite put your finger on it if, if that makes sense it was something and so when aristotle came up with all his aristotelian formulations he insisted that somewhere there had to be this concept of prime matter so when early scientists started looking for prime matter they kept finding stuff well now when scientists look deep like heisenberg looks deep somewhere they just find chaos well, is it chaos? Is it chaos? Is it, or is it prime matter? So you dig deep enough, you, you have this idea that atoms and things are these little solar systems, but you take them apart and you realize they're just energy fields. They're just vibrations. And so somewhere you have to realize that light and light is, has this other property that's this mystical property to it somehow, that it's, it's just beneath reality. It's a non-existent existence. And out of that non-existence existence, you find the basic constructs, God, you find the, the, and you need that. If you don't have that, our world wouldn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that's just beyond our grasp. Well, I think that's what they want, isn't it? Yep. They yeah. want it to not make sense. They want they it to want be it, right. exactly. in, incompre Einstein, incomprehensible. Yeah. Well, that's why Einstein and all these people can just turn it into confusion because yeah. it, 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 you, you, be, you come to that kind of nebulous kind of point that's just out of, outside of our grasp and it'll always be outside of our grasp. And so it becomes a matter of faith. If it's, it's something real, or is it something, is it chaos? And of course, Einstein worked with the Huxleys. That's no surprise, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to, if you want to exploit confusion, yeah, be my guest. Anybody can do that. Yep. Quantum physics. Yep. Are we done?
I'm done. You done? I'm done. I need a better camera. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. I'll see if I can dig something up for next week. No promises yet. Still haven't gotten the uh, dang roof started on there. You can still see that tree branch hanging through. Always lovely when you have a tree hanging in. Um, please hit the like and subscribe. Please share with others. And uh, also please donate if you can. Greatly appreciate all your help and support. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you so much, everybody. Good night. Bye. Good night.